Choke points brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. We're getting our first snowfall in the Cascades. And the question is, will the state have enough people to keep the passes open this year? Chris, tell us the numbers. Well, uh, it was an issue last year, as you remember, and in case you forgot, not only did the passes get a record short uh, snowfall in a really short time, the Washington Department of Transportation went into the winter season down a lot of employees. The maintenance department was already down from its traditional winter staffing levels last year, but the governor's state employee vaccine mandate made those matters worse. The refusal to get the COVID vaccine cost 175 maintenance workers their jobs. Some of them did retire. Some of them just flat out lost their jobs. That put the maintenance department down more than 200 people heading into last winter. WashDOT's Tina Werner says they're in a little bit better shape heading into this winter. Our winter operations staffing is still down from normal winter, but it has improved significantly from this time last fall. The maintenance department has 93 more people than it did last year, thanks to some robust hiring, but Werner says they're still short. Last November, we were short roughly 220 20 winter ops positions. And as of this November, we're down to 128 personnel vacancies. That's 128 people they need to hire to get back to what they would consider full staffing. There is a nationwide shortage of people who do this kind of work. WashDOT is fighting agencies across the state and private companies to fill these vacancies. The biggest need is for people with the commercials driver license to work the trucks and the plows. The second is mechanics. If we can't keep our equipment running, Even if we were fully staffed, you know, uh, we can't get rigs out on the road. And that was a problem last year. You might remember at times the you know, they, could, they might have a truck available, then not a person. They might have a person available, but then the truck was down for mechanic work. So uh, they're trying to avoid a similar situation. In fact, Werner says Washout has started offering CDL classes to its current employees to get many of them able to drive the truck. So maybe somebody who might be a grass cutter in the winter or a flagger, you know, during the rest of the year, uh, they might, you know, get a CDL and then be someone that they could use to fill in when they can. Our staff have started that training now, but in in some cases, they may not be ready to have it completed for this winter season. The state will also reach out to other agencies to help with snow removal if they're having trouble keeping the roads open. We will continue to explore the possibility of agreements with local jurisdictions and private contractors so they could assist with some snow and ice operations on maybe some secondary routes. That would allow state workers to focus on the passes and the lowland freeways should they need de-icing or plowing. As for that vaccine mandate... Werner says it remains in place for any state worker, but contractors with limited public involvement no longer have to provide a proof of COVID vaccine. Contractors that are primarily working outside that can be contracted out for additional additional work that may be needed will no longer uh, be required to provide a vaccination declaration to the state. Well, that's a change. Yeah, that is a change. That's uh, that's the latest guidance that we have going forward. Well, if that's forward. changed, why can't the overall mandate be changed? Well, again, that's up to we the governor. Uh, and of course, he still, those emergency powers don't go away for him until what? I guess to what? Next Monday or Tuesday, depending on what happens there. But yeah, so that is a change so they could get some relief work if they needed to. Uh, but as the state continues to try to fill those open positions, Werner says there's a lot that we can do as drivers to keep the passes open. Our key message here, you know, continues to be safety, safety, safety. Please plan ahead before folks head out the door. Many of our pass closures often are due to driver behavior, people going too fast, failing to have proper equipment, right? Um, So everyone plays a role in making sure that our passes stay open. 
That means following the posted restrictions. If the signs say chains required, that's not a suggestion. It's a requirement. Don't be the driver of that front wheel car that spins out because you failed to put chains on. Don't be the semi driver that fails to do so either. We had a few of those last winter that, that, that spun out as well. And a special message to those large pickup and four wheel drive drivers. Four wheel drive doesn't help you stop. Please watch your speeds and your following distances once the snow starts coming. Very good advice. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has put up what's called a voter information center, voting information center, which will uh, pop up on your screen. Uh, when exactly? That's the question. Let's talk with Robert Trainum, who's Global Public Affairs and Corporate Communications Lead at Meta. Uh, first of all, tell me what the voter information center is designed to accomplish, Robert. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's designed for one in, uh, specific purpose, and that is to be one-stop shopping um, for all of your listeners out there that are interested in voting in this coming election. What we have done, and to your question, um, this is available now. And when you search Voter Information Center on the left-hand side of your screen in the search function of Facebook, what will pop up is instant information about your local precinct area. It will tell you the exactly where to vote how to vote, if in, if in fact you want to uh, do a mail-in ballot, what is the deadline for that, if there's any COVID protocol and so forth. We wanted to meet our folks exactly where they are, which is on Facebook.com. How did you identify that this was needed on Facebook's platform? So we listen um, a lot to our users. We listen to a lot of their feedback, and you know we saw in the in the comment section, "Hey, when is when is the election? Or who's on the ballot?" And I have no idea. I just moved to this neighborhood. I have no idea where to uh, uh, where, where to vote. So when you go to the voter information center, um, we know your location based on you t- you you telling us that by, by zip code, and it will be very personalized specifically to your area. Again, about where to vote, about how to vote, uh, who's on the ballot, etc. Okay, so it had nothing to do with the fact that during the last election cycle, misinformation was rampant on social media services, including Facebook. Let me answer that two ways. So first and foremost, we take misinformation extremely seriously. Uh, We are helping to protect elections um, around the country. We want to make sure that individuals have the most up-to-date, reliable information as possible. So that's why we partner with the Secretary of State's office to make sure that the information that is provided is linked directly to their website. So that's, that's priority number one. And also priority number two to my earlier point, listening specifically to feedback, uh, a lot of individuals were quite frankly just confused uh, or perhaps maybe just overwhelmed with uh, information about how to vote and where to vote. So when does the link to this voter information center pop up? Is it linked to uh, political news postings on Facebook or does it just automatically pop up on everybody's page? So this information is available now. It is the voter information center. So when you log on to Facebook on the left hand side, just type in uh, voter information center. What will pop up is the most localized up-to-date information that's available as we speak. Um, it's, so when you take a look at Facebook.com, on the left-hand side, you will see Marketplace. Um, you will see some other, uh, uh, how you can get blood and so forth. It's exactly right there under uh, the search section. But, I mean, the, the problem that the people have had with social media is that there's many times no way to tell what's true from what's not. So is this, is this in any way uh, designed to evaluate or identify posts or links that contain false information and warn people away from them. 
Yeah, so as I mentioned, this is direct information from the Washington Washington Secretary of State's office. Mm-hmm. So what we specifically do is link to the Secretary of State's office right. for the most up-to-date information. This is not about political candidates. This is not about political um, information. It's only about civic mm-hmm. voting information. I mean, for example, if somebody vote. was posting, if somebody comes across a post saying uh, the, the election has been changed until December, uh, would there be uh, a flag, you know, saying uh, that's not true? Here's the Secretary of State's website, something like that. That is correct. We have a dedicated team uh, focused on the midterms and building on the important systems uh, that we've put in place around reliable information. Uh, we are combating election misinformation. And by the way, it's not just in uh, in English, but we also have this across languages. Uh, and so we're working to make sure that we keep our platform safe. But I this bears repeating because I want to make sure that it lands um, the right way. This is information about the civic process around how to vote and where to vote. Jermaine, to your question, yes, we take that information down because that is misleading. We know uh, that Election Day is on Tuesday. We know that uh, because that is the law. So if, in fact, there's anything else contrary to that, uh, let's say, oh, you can vote on Christmas Day. We know that's not the case, right? So we will take that down immediately. What is the process now, a days, uh, behind the scenes at Facebook to combat those types of posts that Dave was talking about? Say, for instance, somebody says, Oh, you know, the date for voting has changed. Is it an algorithm that weeds those things out and and flags them? Or is it actual people responding to these reports of misinformation from users? So I think it's threefold. So first and foremost, we work with um, law enforcement officials at the local level, but also at the national level. This is Department of Homeland Security. This is the United States Secret Service. This is the FBI, et cetera. Um, and that's at the national and international level. We, so those are, those are real people um, that we have. Uh, we have a, a, a very, very strong elections uh, team in place. In addition to that, um, Jermaine, to your question, uh, Colleen, we also have uh, machine learning. Um, and this is um, uh, the machines knowing that Election Day is not on a Sunday, um, knowing that Election Day is obviously the second Tuesday of November. So it knows that. So it'll take that information down almost before you even are able to, to put it up. And lastly, and I think this is incredibly important as well, we also rely on our users to flag information. So if someone posts something that is clearly not right, please report it. Uh, please just flag it. Um, there's a way that when you see um, uh, a comment and it just doesn't either, A, it doesn't feel right. It just, you know, your gut check. Or two, you know that Election Day is not on Sunday. Flag that. That will go to our Voter Information Center individuals, and we will investigate that just as soon as we possibly can. You, of course, have a security operation. Are you aware of any external threats to the uh, upcoming election, either organized threats to plant misinformation or somehow interfere with voting? Well, here's how I take a look at this. Um, We have a lot of bad actors out there. Uh, around the world uh, that wake up every single day to try to spread misinformation. And so, as I mentioned, we work every day uh, with law enforcement officials at the local level, but also at the national, international level uh, to combat um, this uh, th- th- that misinformation. So it's a global network uh, of individuals. Uh, we have more than 80 fact-checking partners uh, around the world. Um, so this is something that is a top priority for us every single day. Robert Trainum is the Global Public Affairs and Corporate Communications Lead at Meta. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And the last thing that I would say is that for anyone that wants more information, please go to fb.me forward slash U.S. midterms, and you can take a look at our midterms elections plan. 
Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. A little girl takes her wish and turns it into more. WCCO reporter Ren Clayton reports. Joy comes in many forms. Saturday in Blaine, it came as a carnival. All for two-year-old Kenna Volkman. She had one wish. Thanks to Fridley-based wishes and more, that came true. About a year and a half ago, Kenna was diagnosed with retinoblastoma. She had a tumor on her left eye. At first, it was it was very scary, and then uh, as as it came to the point where the chemo was done, it became more looking forward to the future and at this point we're, we're, we're in maintenance mode and we're hoping that it continues that way. Kenna has had two more tumors quickly treated. She now has partial vision in that one eye. It was stressful. We weren't sure if she'd be able to keep her eye or not. Saturday a celebration of the progress she's made but she had one more wish. Kenna's family wanted the carnival to help grant even more kids wishes, doing double duty as a fundraiser. Touched all of our hearts because it was to give. At the same time, having experience for a little girl who loves parties. Uh, We invited everyone we know. Friends from work, friends from daycare, friends all around, everyone. Hundreds of people came through Infinite Campus in Blaine to lend their support for an organization who grants wishes as big as deep sea fishing or Disneyland trips for kids who are sick. We come in and can't do anything about that, but we sure can make some very special memories and some extraordinary moments, and that's what we do. Her family will remember this day forever. That is Ren Clayton reporting. 7.48, and now, from the Gian Ursula Show, which starts at 9 right here on Cairo News Radio, here he is back from L.A., G. Scott. Good morning, brother. Good morning to you. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning. So, how was your trip? It was great. Uh, I had an opportunity to go down to L.A., um, was at that Seahawk game when they took care of those L.A. Chargers down there in SoFi Stadium. Let me just say this. Um... Guys, that is the best stadium that I've ever been to in my entire Ooh, life. Really? And I have been to stadiums. Why? Yo, because it was futuristic. Hmm. My last name was Jetson <laughs> the entire time. Give us the details. I that mean, was so good. yo, you just kind of come in. It's huge. You go in there. Everything is state of the art. There's escalators going through. Like, you know how, I mean, usually, you know, you some stairs or some ramps. Nah, we get escalators and, and we get uh, so we got elevators and and then the staff is just every is everywhere. Shout out to Lumen Lumen Field. Nothing, no disrespect towards that, but it's like going over to the new family member's house. They got the new house and they always have Thanksgiving. Y'all always notice how the family with the new house they always want to have Thanksgiving there. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Dave just made me snort because he's over yeah. there like quietly talking, uh, like repeating what you're saying, trying to translate. What? <laughs> trying to figure out all this, all that matters is how do they get food to your seat? So how do they get food to your seat? I, well, drones. <laughs> well, no drones. Same like way. It. Same way. You know. Well, oh, you got to get up and get the food. Yes, What's yes, futuristic yes. about that? Yeah. <laughs> 
But there was a, but there was a lot of places. Like I don't know. I, I can't really explain it. It was just huge. If you get an opportunity to go, go. Were you and by just the happy way, to go, have sunshine and no smoke? Is that what it was? Yeah, it was that. You know what I'm saying? And also, just just being in L.A. I just love L.A. It's just just recharges me up. So now I'm back, but. I missed you guys. I missed yesterday morning with you guys. I felt kind of odd and weird, so I'm glad to be back today. All right, so DK Metcalf, what's the latest? Okay, um, the latest is is uh, patella tendon, P- patella tendonitis. Basically, probably what it is. It's called. They call it a jumper's knee. And the patella tendon, as you guys know, that is the tissue that connects the kneecap and the fin. So if mm. you put your leg out, that tendon right there, that fatty, mm-hmm. yeah, it's that right there. My son has had issues with that. Doug Baldwin has had issues with that. I had a little bit of it when I played in college. Let me get. Let me tell you guys something. And I know DK wants to get back to practice. Uh, tomorrow you got to chill a little bit on this kind of thing this is something that when it flares up it is no fun Mm. you guys see how big dk is yeah so he's got a big patella tendon then huh right yeah you see how fast and explosive he is so this is rough he needs to uh, you know kind of chill with that now the good news is is this so how can can he play through it possibly doug baldwin had it his entire career Nobody knew it. Yeah, he Doug Baldwin had his entire career. And by the way, Doug's one of the toughest dudes ever. What do they do? Do they just inject like a steroid into it so they can't feel it? Or what's the deal? Well, you you can't really just do that because that would overcompensate things. The biggest thing you do, Colleen, you just... You got to really warm up and you really got to take care of it. So for an example, I'll just tell you this. When my son, like it, it flared up on him last year and it stayed flared up for about three to four months. For him, let's say practice, practice would start at eight o'clock in the morning. He would get to the facility at six o'clock, six a.m., and have to be going through this huge regimen just to get ready for practice. So basically, you're getting that knee. You're basically really getting it warmed up. You're going through all the things with the trainers and all that stuff. You're doing the ice and the co- uh, ice and heat, all that. So you're doing so much to get that knee ready. Just uh, serious question: do, do some of these guys get too big for their knees? I mean, DK weighs, uh, according to this, 236 pounds. That's a lot of pressure on the knee. Can, can you be in too good a shape such that you put stress on, on joints that were never designed to handle that much? Well, um, that's a yes and no question. Uh, and that's a very good question because the truth is, it's kind of, sort of, but then you take DK. Not only is he a big dude, he's also a strong dude. Yeah. Like, like a lot of people aren't as strong as DK. So when you start talking about force, like that knee When he stabs it to the ground to get ready to run, there's so much power in that stride, in that step. So, yeah, the the patella tendon is like... Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It happens like yeah. that. Well, someday there'll be an operation where you can install a brand new uh, can, cybernetic whatever it is thing yeah, that I can will, handle that. Then why don't I we do, just have robots slamming into each other at that but, point, but, right? But, 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 but real quick, I'm going to take this time to say this. I was going to wait and talk about this on uh, Mike Salk's show over there on 710, but I'm going to do it now. So DK, so notice this. After that game, DK is hurting with the patella tendon, right? Yeah. Also, during that game, the guy that was covering DK, yeah, he went out with a patella tear. One of the things that I said before the game, this is no lie, I was down, I said this stadium 
is beautiful. It is state of the art. It is the best stadium that I've ever been to. The biggest problem that I have with that stadium is they did all that work and decided to put turf down. Oh, that's the problem. So you're saying the field is doing this? I'm saying none of the fields should have turf. It should be grass, grass fields. That is the best. That's the more of a soft point, landing point for your body. So, yes, again, the the guy that was covering DK on Sunday is out with a patellar tear. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock on Cairo Radio. G, thank you. See you guys. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here it is Tuesday. Time for David Farenthold from the New York Times. First of all, congratulations on the uh, Astros beating the Yankees. Very well done. Thank you. I had a lot to do with it. Very proud. Yeah. I figure if there's if we got it, we have to be beat by any team. <laughs> to be beat by a team that can beat the Yankees is a you know, pretty good company to be in. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Good luck in the big show. Uh, okay. So. I, I was reading the New York Times latest uh, huge statistical piece on uh, on why certain uh, Republican members of Congress objected to the election. They did a big, you know, uh, dive into the data of individual congressional districts. And, and basically they, they found that the districts whose representatives voted to, to challenge the uh, election of Joe Biden were places where there's uh, lots of immigration, where white people are becoming a minority and uh, you know, you know, people were lashing out. So th- that's all to prepare for my big question here. You ready? Yes. I, I get why people would vote for a candidate that shakes things up if they see life as they know it threatened. I don't get why you'd make up stuff to create distrust in the voting process itself. Can you explain that? That's what surprises me. I mean, we've talked about this many times that Trump is sometimes doesn't seem like a, he's he's following a strategy that makes sense for him long term. Yes, he needs the Republicans need people to vote in 2022. They need to vote in, again in 2024 if they're going to take power. And they, I guess they, their hope is that they can they can raise enough distrust that they can challenge the results if they lose, but not mm-hmm. so much distrust that their own voters don't go to the polls. I guess we'll see that in 2022. I mean, the, the best test case for that so far, I think, has been the 2021 Georgia runoffs. Remember, as Trump was sowing so much distrust about the election, Democrats won both those seats in that right. formerly red state. So I, there is a cost for Republicans, but I think you know, they you know, this is not something where I think some grand strategy Trump is following. He's just doing what help what he thinks is going to help him today. Yeah. Well, now it occurs to me there are there are some fire starters on the left as well. Any any indication they might start playing the same game if there's a result they don't like, they will start sowing distrust in the election process. Well, it has happened. I mean, I think the best example is probably Stacey Abrams in Georgia when she lost in 2018. Right. She spent a lot of time challenging the election results and saying things were, you know, there was something wrong. With, and ultimately, all those cases were dismissed, just like Trump's have been dismissed. I don't think you see it as, you know, anywhere near as widespread in the Democratic Party. There are some, yes. But it's, you know, within the Republican Party, it is orthodoxy almost. There's so many candidates running on the idea that the last election was stolen. Yeah. OK, the election's already underway here in Washington. Of course, the ballots went out and you can return them anytime. And a lot of states are doing the same. Do you uh, you know, do your does your spidey sense indicate any indications of uh, fraud or organized election stealing movements or interference by foreign powers at work this time around? <laughs> 
No, nothing so far. I mean, I think there have been some attempts at intimidation at the ballot box. There's been some places in Arizona where like an armed observer is standing there watching people put ballots in a ballot drop box. Um, but no, there's been no indication so far by anyone that there is either foreign influence or some sort of conspiracy of Americans to try to stuff the ballot boxes or change the results. Intimidation is against the law, right? Yeah, and I think people are they're investigating that. The problem is probably once in, you know these things are sort of ephemeral encounters, and once they happen, it's you know you you can't go back and unintimidate that person. Right. Uh, I don't know if you saw Liz Cheney's uh, appearance over the weekend on the uh, what's she on Meet the Press? I think right. Yeah, she mm-hmm. was on with Chuck Todd. Uh, she basically said that now that she's you know leaving Congress, she was defeated in her primary. Uh, she will do anything necessary to make sure Donald Trump never attains public office again. It was, um, I mean, she, she's got a fire in her belly now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what that means. Does, anybody, does that mean she's running? Does that mean she is starting uh, a, another party? She said, she said that if Trump gets nominated, that would shatter the Republican Party. It would, it would, it would split into two parties. Uh, where, where does that lead exactly? Well, I, I wondered that, too. I mean, to, to me, it seems like if you want to maximize the damage to Trump and you're truly not in this for yourself, you could try running against him in the Republican primary, although you run the risk there that you're going to you know, unify the party against you and behind Trump. Um, you also you know, or you run the risk of splitting the party so many different ways, just like in 2016, that Trump and his 33 percent will be the biggest faction. I don't think it would mean running against Trump in the general as sort of an independent candidate. I mean, we've seen from Jill Stein to Ralph Nader to, you know, Ross Perot, that, you know, if you run as an independent candidate, the person who the other mainstream candidate who is most like you loses. So I, I think she would only help Trump if she ran as an independent candidate in the general. Well, I mean, conceivably, if the Republican Party split, wouldn't they, if we had like a like a, a third party candidate that would guarantee a Democratic victory, wouldn't it? Well, I think she's a little over optimistic about the number of Republicans who would vote for her. I guess if I guess if you thought this was a Ross Perot type situation yeah. where a big chunk of Republicans would vote for you rather than Trump, then maybe it would make sense. But I, I feel like at this point, her appeal, just judging by her fundraising, her appeal is largely to centrist Democrats or to centrists who might vote Democrat. So I, I think, you know, those kind of people might get sort of moved away from the Democrats and help Trump after all. Yeah. Okay. Are you keeping a a score sheet of the number of uh, lawsuits filed by and against Trump? (laughs) No, I know others are, but I am not. I know there's there's many and they seem to grow by the day. They do. And the I guess the biggest legal jeopardy for him is this subpoena issued by the January 6th committee. I noticed that um, the Supreme Court or Clarence Thomas stepped in and basically delayed the subpoena that was issued by Georgia for Lindsey Graham's testimony. So I suppose conceivably somebody could also come to Trump's rescue there. Yeah, I, I really just don't think the January 6th – he'll ever testify, at least testify unwillingly before the January 6th committee. There's, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of legal gray areas for a congressional subpoena. It's not quite like a you know, law enforcement subpoena. And the January 6th committee probably is going to cease to exist in January once the Republicans take the House if that happens. And I think – so the subpoena will go away then. I just don't think there's going to be enough time for that case to go through the courts for Trump to face any consequences. I, I think the bigger legal threats to him are the investigation of the documents in Mar-a-Lago and mm-hmm. the Georgia, um, when you mentioned the Georgia grand jury investigation into election interference in 2020. Is it fair to say the Justice Department is sort of marking time until after the election? 
Well, we had a good story yesterday about um, how they're putting pressure on sort of the, the witnesses closest to Trump, basically people like who were his valet, other people who worked for him closely and might have handled the documents at his behest, that they think those people have lied to them and they want to bring them back in and threaten them with you know cr- prosecution themselves and get them to flip on Trump. The reading of that from legal experts is that that's, that means this case is sort of close to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I don't think they're going to do anything before the midterms. But, you know, I, I don't know if they're marking time or if they're actually, you know, working on something they're not quite ready yet. David Farenthal from The New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. You can ring my bell. Ring the bell. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And Rachel Bell is here to talk about the concept of women going naked from the neck up. What's this about? Ooh, what a seductive tease. I love it. Like, where is he going with this? Seriously. Yeah, so 20-year-old Melissa Ralph, she is the first makeup-free participant in the Miss England in the Miss England competition. That's so what it's called. Makeup-free. Mm. Makeup-free. And, you know, it's just like a Miss America, but just for England. She said that she used to spend hours putting on makeup because she felt insecure and she didn't feel confident. But she decided that she just wanted to try this and she wanted to do it as a personal challenge to kind of push through those feelings that you have to wear makeup to be pretty. Uh, And she made it to the finals. She said that she also wanted to encourage other women to not feel like they have to hold themselves to these beauty standards. And she started the hashtag bareface. I believe that's what it is. There are now 500,000 Instagram posts that say bareface because people were inspired. Did her her fellow contestants follow suit in the finals or did they wear makeup? They wore makeup. But that's what's funny is like when you see the picture of all of them, it actually makes the women wearing makeup look insane because she looks looks just normal and natural and they're wearing so much makeup it looks like a drag show. Did the judges know she was making a cause out of this before they decided who the winner was? I think that they did because actually there was some beauty contest started in England that was only for bare faces that she was in before that to kind of like warm herself up but I love love this because you know this is something we talk about on the show a lot just all different ways that society makes you feel like you have to look a certain way and I've kind of been challenging myself like I'm not wearing any makeup right now sometimes I don't when I come to work because I'm I like I wouldn't have known that you're yeah, really great yes, oh thank you good skin thank Girl. you so much maybe this is where I announced that I'm pregnant I'm not <laughs> you're glowing you're glowing but that's the thing about it is that whether you don't wear makeup or wear makeup people will always comment on your face and I think this is something most women know intimately that you know the, the day you decide to come to work with no makeup everybody's like hey what's wrong are you tired right and it's like darn it you know or you know I, I used to get Botox and then I stopped and once I stopped my daughter was like, mom, stop giving me that face. And I'm oh. like, this is just my face. And so I went and got Botox again because I don't want to be angry, mom. But, you know, it's a personal choice, mm-hmm. but people just need to stop commenting on our looks. Mm-hmm. Just I know that stop is. it. By the way, does going naked from the neck up apply to the hair as well, or mm. do you make an exception for that? I guess it depends what you think of as naked. If that's like a hair product, it's natural then, hair. Yeah. Y'all don't want to see my natural hair. <laughs> I don't want it. Mine makes me feel weird. Hmm. It's too frizzy. It makes me What's feel. Yeah, it just makes me yeah. feel like, oh, like it's kind of like when you have a messy room, you can't get your work uh-huh. done. Yeah. When my hair is um, wild and frizzy, I feel like unkempt. So is it and naturally curly like that? Oh, yeah. I haven't yeah. had a perm. Not since the 60s. That's amazing. <laughs> you should embrace that. No, I like my curly hair, but yeah. there's levels of, of frizziness. Yeah, you got to tame it. the beast. Yeah, you gotta tame Here's another hair. question that, that science has been trying to answer for mm-hmm. a long time. Why does a sandwich always taste better at the deli than, than when you make the exact same sandwich right? yourself at home? Yeah, and the other question is, or the other comment is, why does food taste better when someone else makes it for you? I think that's yeah. something everybody can experience. And I always just thought that that was kind of like an emotional thing, like, oh, you feel taken care of. It's so nice. 
but there's actually more science behind it. And I'd heard a theory similar to this before. So when you are making it, they're using a sandwich. I think it applies to all food. When you're making a sandwich, um, you're anticipating what it's going to taste like when you're working on it. And so by the time you're done, your brain almost feels like you ate already. And so you're not very hungry anymore and it's not as novel and thrilling because you've already tasted it in your mind. True. That explains anytime I cook like a big dinner, whether yep. it's Thanksgiving or I have guests over, I sit down and they're like, Colleen, why aren't you eating? That explains it. That's exactly Because I've been it. looking at and smelling and taking in this food for hours. Yeah, and especially with Thanksgiving, they say there's something about all those smells that tricks your brain into thinking that you ate and you're not as hungry. The other thing they said that I was like, yeah, I never put salt and pepper really on my sandwiches mm-hmm. and they do that at the deli. So they said, you know, season it up, maybe spritz some vinegar on there or something. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so speaking is, of sandwiches, Dave, you have interesting sandwich combinations. Oh. <laughs> yes, he does. Tell us what makes a good sandwich, Dave. I think it's a combination of vegetables and some sort of uh, condiment like peanut butter. For example, kale, peanut butter, and uh, and pickles. We went through this, didn't we? And bok choy. Yeah. I wasn't yeah, here choy. for this. This is one That's of my good. favorite things about Dave are these combinations. Yeah, yeah I love it so it's much. It's surprisingly good. and it's, it's basically a sandwich made to use the leftovers in the refrigerator, but once, it, once in a while, I hit on one that I, I'm willing to eat again. Have you made one that you did not like? I uh, uh, was, I think it was spaghetti and beans. That, <laughs> Wait, in a sandwich? Yeah, that did not work. A it, spaghetti and beans sandwich. It soggied up the bread <gasps> quite a like bit. Like baked beans or just... <laughs> No, I think it was leftover garbanzos. Okay. Well, I'm I'm with you because I've actually... It can't all be hits, Colleen. I've had pasta with garbanzos, not in a sandwich. And I've had, oh my God, one of my favorite things. In Salt Lake City, there's this pizza place called Pie, P-I. And they make a calzone filled with spaghetti and meatballs. That is, I think about it all year. It's so good. That sounds good. So I'm with you. That's Rachel Bell. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.